Good morning. Good morning. I am, I am Devin Shoulders, Deacon at CBC. I will be teaching this morning. Hi, Devin. Hi. Hi, Josh. Um, I'll go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for your many blessings, for the opportunity to try and handle your word for a minute. We pray that we might have a blessings from what's spoken in here, in our Sunday schools, and in our church, and in worship. Bless our elders, our pastors, our deacons. And most of all, we pray that you would just uh, fill us with the joy of what you have done for us in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. All right, um, so <coughs> we have uh, concluded uh, Ephesians 1 as of last week. And um, we are now in Ephesians 2. Um, a little uh, transparency. It's a little bit of a... Um, I feel like I needed to do this one, particularly whether I get into it all or not, because uh, this is the section of Scripture that we last heard a sermon from before me and uh, Kelsey decided to leave uh, my old church. And uh, so... It's uh, important to me and special to me. It was beforehand, and, and as all the words should be. But uh, um, so I, I felt, I guess, led to teach this uh, to much to Damien's chagrin. I guess <laughs> <laughs> I, I, he was like, whenever we picked no, up. No, actually, <laughs> I specifically didn't choose this one because uh, everybody's heard me talk about it so often. I know. I just let's get somebody else to talk about it. Right. <laughs> Anyways, uh, let's start in uh, Ephesians uh, 2, verse 1 through 10. And you, although you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the ruler of the authority of the air, the spirit now working in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all formerly lived in the desires of our flesh, doing the will of the flesh and of the mind, and were children of wrath by nature, and also the rest of them were. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, and we being dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved, and, rather, and raised us together, and seated us together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, in order that he might show in the coming ages the surpassing riches of his grace in kindness upon us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you are saved through faith, and that is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. It is not from works, so that no one can boast. For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we may walk in them. Make sure. I don't I think this I actually did not read this in the ESV on this. You definitely did not. No. Did not. Okay, my let's do that again because that's gonna throw me off. What version was that? That was the Lexan Bible. That's not what I had drawn up here. <laughs> okay. Um you are unhelpful, Lagos. Bye. <laughs> let's see. Let's try again. Um and you were dead in trespasses of sin in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in his mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good, I feel better. All right. Um, so um, in uh, the previous chapter, in uh, Paul's salutation to uh, the Ephesian Christians, um, we see a number of wonderful theological truths. He's telling us, as we've already covered, about all the these blessings that we have received in Christ being saved. Um we are chosen before the foundation of the world. Um, we are predestined. We are adopted, which is a beautiful truth. Uh, Jeremy covered some stuff on that, I believe, last week. I'm talking about Mephibosheth in church. Um, we um, have all these uh, blessings listed. And the, one of the, the, the themes running through the first chapter that carries over into the second, which is a continuing thought, is um, that uh, these things are all done in Christ Jesus. So we have a positional reality that we are in Christ Jesus. So um, having said that, having uh, shown us the blessings that we receive in Christ, receive in Christ Jesus, he then uh, carries over into chapter 2, continues his thought, and reminds us of our former reality. So we are now in Christ Jesus, but we were dead in trespasses and in sin. Not just dead, but dead in trespasses and sin, which sounds really weird to think of being that we're all walking around, we're alive, we breathe, we talk, we interact with each other. But what he's using is a metaphor for our spiritual state. Um, to be dead and trespasses in sin is to be separate from Christ Jesus, to be separate from God, to not be able to feel anything. It's very strong um, language. Oh. So, what does it mean to be dead? If you've been to a funeral, if you've worked in a hospital, like someone I know, and uh, you've seen someone dead, you try and talk to that person, are you going to get a response? If you go to a funeral and you look in the casket and ask that person to stand up again, will they pull themselves up from the casket? Will they move out and say, oh, that was terrible. I'm better now. No, they, uh, they're not, they are dead. It would be scary. <laughs> it's like one of them zombie movies. Uh, we are so dead, so unfeeling, apart from God, that there is no way possible that you and I can respond to him in any way. 
we are what the reformers called totally depraved, radically depraved, which means that we have such a lack of spiritual good that we are completely unable to do anything good before God that should merit us to be saved. I'm jumping ahead a little bit. We, we can't do anything in and of ourselves. He says here that um, we are dead in our trespasses and sins in which you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, let, like the rest of mankind. So we're dead in our trespasses and sins. And it's not just that this is a state we're in, but it's something that we actively pursue. Um, our hearts are inclined towards wickedness. And so we follow after uh, we follow after the course of this world, the way the whole world uh, follows after sin. We too have followed after sin. After the prince of the power of the air, uh, I think that has some kind of uh, reference, the power of the air um, to demons. I think uh, historically from what little bit I looked up, um, some ancient peoples believe that demons resided in the air, in the space between the sky and the earth. But ultimately, um, we follow after the devil. Um, this is something that um, we look at and seems so radical to us, and we say, well, no, I'm, I'm good, right? I, I'm not ter a, a terrible person. I'm not a bad person. Um, I've done good. I give to uh, this charity, or I've done this good thing for my neighbor, or I care for my kids, I care for my loved ones, my family. Philosophically speaking, I think in our flesh, we believe that all men are basically good. And what we're not saying when we're saying that someone is totally depraved is that everyone is just as bad or as rotten as they could possibly be. I could probably look at any of you before your conversion to faith, get to know you and have seen something that I, as a, as a person, would consider good. But you didn't know me. No, I didn't know him. <laughs> but uh, the problem there is, is that we pres we presuppose that our goodness and God's goodness are in any way the same. God is wholly other. In other words, when we say that God is good, God is good and uniquely so. No one is good like God is. And we see, when we see ourselves as we truly are, we see our deadness, our wretchedness, our filthiness. The Bible says that all righteousness is as filthy rags in the sight of God. When we see our goodness apart from the Lord, we are put to shame. 
So we are not only in this state, but we are pursuing after the desires of our own wickedness. Our wills are in bondage to this wickedness, right? They're enslaved. Um, we, our hearts follow after those things. So we are inclined towards sin, and therefore, because we cannot, we are inclined towards sin, we cannot choose God in our own power. Um, there's not going to be a point where a man can do good enough, can behave well enough, can treat his neighbor well enough, apart from God, where God's going to look at him and say, all right, you did it, you achieved it. Um, can I add that real quick? Yes, sir. That's why I like that word dead, because <laughs> it... <laughs> Well, or I don't like the word dead. You know what I mean? Like the concept of being dead, being mm -hmm. described that way. There's two things there. There's dead in that in order to, like you said, if somebody's dead, they're laying on a on a table in a hospital or in a casket, command them to get up. Like there's nothing, and this, this analogy is kind of breaking down as I say it, but <laughs> if somebody is dead, there's nothing they can do in and of themselves to change that status. Right. So one, that indicates that if we're in the status of being dead, there's nothing that we in and of ourselves can do to change that. It requires something external. Then also reason is when you're coming about being in bondage, our wills are in bondage to sin. There's also that sort of when you're dead, you have no autonomy either, mm -hmm. right? So when we're dead in our trespasses and sin, as you said, we're still actually alive and walking around, but we're dead in the sense that we cannot choose anything but sin. Mm -hmm. When we're in bondage, when our wills are in bondage to sin and in those trespasses, we literally can't help but choose that. It's yeah. all we can choose. Yeah. So again, it just goes back to this whole picture of like, you are completely dead. There's nothing in and of yourselves that's good or can save you. And it requires in totality something outside of you. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> yes. Um, well said. Um, our, our, our ability or desire to do good in our own flesh, our own selves, is always going to be marred by our sinfulness apart from God. Um, and God requires perfection, doesn't he? So, what are we to do? We are responsible as well. God holds us responsible for our wickedness. Some in the world look out and think on God, think about their own perceived goodness, and they're like uh, that story of the potter and the clay. They're like the lump of clay saying, God, why have you made me this way? As if we could hold God accountable for what we've done. Adam fell. He chose freely to sin, and so affected all of us, the world itself and all those that are to come. We are under his, you've heard federal headship. Um, we, are, we are counted responsible for our sins because of what Adam did. Adam represented us all in the fall. And then we also actively pursue it. 
we are dead, we are unfeeling, um, lumps of clay, and yet so many people in the world try and try and uh, hold God responsible for um, what we are responsible for. Ephesians uh, two four through seven says God, but God being rich in mercy, and we've already well like discussed like how God has lavished blessings upon us and poured them out greatly. And, and he's gone through this whole diatribe of just the different things we receive, how we become adopted children and um, how Jesus has done all these things. Um, he says, in spite of our deadness, our inability to come to him, God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he, he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So he's rich in mercy and he loves us greatly. He loves those who he has chosen, who has decided to set his love upon, who he's decided to in time call unto him and save. Um, he loved us uh, so much that he makes us alive together with Christ. So we have the one Adam by it, which we all fell into sin. Then we have the second Adam, which is Christ Jesus whom we are in. Um, Jesus took the form or took on flesh, became a man, and he lived life perfectly where we could not. And in doing so, became a perfect sacrifice so that he could die on the cross for our sins and resurrect new life for us. Having done those things, when we believe on him, God imputes. He doesn't infuse. He doesn't make us inwardly righteous, righteous, but he takes the righteousness of Jesus Christ and places it over us like a covering, like he did all the way back when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and he slew that animal and covered their nakedness. So he takes the righteousness of Christ and covers us so that we see so that God sees Christ's righteousness upon us. When he looks down upon us, having been saved, he sees his dear son whom he loves. And because he loves his son, he loves you and I. With, with a greater love than any of us can understand, a love that was before the foundation of the world even. I don't fully understand or comprehend, and I'm struggling to put into words because I'm a, a weak person human being, how magnificent, how truly blessed you and I are this morning because of what Jesus Christ did that we could not. He made us alive together with Christ. And he then here interludes to say that by grace, you have been saved, which we will cover in a moment. And he raised us up. So we partake with Christ in not only his death, or his burial, but his resurrection. So we are born again and raised up to new life. 
And he seats us with him. You remember last week when Damien covered how Jesus Christ ascended into the heavenly places and sits at the right hand of the Father. We live in this already but not yet kind of reality where somehow, though you and I are down here struggling through life, trying to follow after the Lord, sometimes making a mess of it, sometimes doing okay, um, somehow, though we have not seen the full reality of our salvation, that we haven't died yet and been glorified, it's as when God looks at us, looks over at his son, seated at his right hand, it's as if you and I that are in Christ are seated with him. I don't fully comprehend that. How could I? But there's some amazing reality there in which we're already there with Christ because of Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So he has seated us with him in the heavenly places so that in the coming ages, in heaven, in the finality of it all, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace, the fullness of his undeserved favor. We're going to finally see what the fullness of those blessings look like one day. This is the hope that you and I have that we so often forget sometimes when we're just trying to get by in life that we have this great immeasurable hope that we can barely fathom that God has prepared for us in Christ Jesus in heaven. It should, you would think in our minds it would make it all the more easier to get through this life, but we're weak and it's understandable. Um, Ezekiel 36, 26 says, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. He's In bringing us to new life, he takes out that stony, hard heart, that unfeeling heart, puts in a heart that can feel him and know him and respond to him. John 3 and 3 says, uh, in talking to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. Part of the reason why we left, uh, um, I, I didn't mean to say any name, but um, was over the confusion of the matter of regeneration they 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 the things we hold to here um some of uh that well we'll just say reformed theology some of that they were adamantly and aggressively against and i love them all i mean but and it's uh if that's what they believe that's their prerogative and that's part of the reason i left but uh it had to do with well order of salvation really um Larry covered that pretty well in the, one of the last uh, courses we had in the other class. Um, the, it's called Order Salutis. That's the fancy term for it. Just order salvation. And, and Paul covered some of that here, how we're elect, we're uh, predestined, we're called, all these things. But part of the question is where new life comes in. Here we see that... Um, we must be uh, born again, 
and uh, and it says that Christ, we are made alive together in Christ. Um, so where where a lot of people seem to find confusion with the um, that whole order thing is where new life begins in salvation. So we've already said that you and I are dead, right? We cannot respond to Christ. So we need new life. Where I came from, you would have, um, and this is not the way I got it. I, I came to Christ at home, but we would have benches and you would have so many songs. The preacher would preach maybe if the testifying service didn't go long. And then there would be a call uh, to repentance and people would come to the altar. And it's not to say that people don't get saved that way. I mean, I've known people from that church that I believe were Christians. But part of the problem, and maybe it's so with a lot of revivalistic type um, systems, is that... You can run to the place of trying to manufacture what the Holy Spirit does. So, um, because that was preached more than much of the gospel, and uh, so many services became just about getting people to the altar bench, you know, the assumption would be like, well, people are resisting grace, or that, you know, They thought grace could be resisted, uh, and they thought that you didn't get new life until uh, you prayed through. So if prayer in a dead person's uh, mouth is not accompanied by new life, it's just a work then, isn't it? So... um, We believe that um, God, in order for a man to respond to him in faith, he must first be made alive. He must first be regenerated. And then the Holy Spirit empowers him or her to believe. Um, Where is that first? Can someone read uh, 1 John 5 uh, and 1? Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. So, um, everyone who believes that Jesus Christ is God has been born again. In other words, if you notice the order of how this is expressed here in this first verse, in order for there to be belief and love of God, there must first be new birth, right? So it's incumbent upon God to make us alive before we can respond to him in faith. Um, if you remember... Uh, 
You remember Ezekiel 37, 1 through 14? Let me speed along a little bit. I want to say 37 through 1 through 14. Um, this is the Valley of Dry Bones. It says, The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones, and he led me around among them. And behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to him, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and said to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord to these, of God to these dry bones, these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a sound, and behold, a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to, it, bone to its bone, and I looked, and behold, there were sinews, sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin and co had covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, Prophesy to the breath, Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord." So briefly, we see a picture here of what God does uh, in us, that spiritual reality. The picture is such a dead picture that the bones have no muscle on them. They're completely dry. They have completely decayed. And God says to the prophet, do you believe that I can raise these bones up? And the prophet says, you know you can, Lord. And so he commands the prophet to preach. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, right? Though we're completely passive in terms of somebody being saved, we are commanded by God to preach the word that they may hear and believe. And then God comes in, gives new life, and brings faith, the gift of faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, who God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So it's by God's grace we are saved. Undeserved favor. God is making clear that we cannot do it in and of ourselves. 
and it is by grace through faith. And the Bible tells us here that it is a gift. It's very clear that it is not your own doing. So a gift, if I pay someone for it, it's no longer a gift, right? If I go out and work and try and earn something, it's not a gift. I've earned that thing. I, it has to be received freely from another individual to be called a gift. The thing we left our old church on is the fact that in response to Reformed theology, uh, my pastor then had attempted to counteract it by saying that grace was the gift and that the faith was the part you do. Now, here's where we can kind of run into some tricky waters if we're not careful. I know the background there, and I know what he meant, that you had to pray through in order to receive new life. You had to pray until God was satisfied. In testifying services, I used to hear all the time people in talking about the Lord. Thankfully, they would say that God saw something in me and saved me. And that is wrong. We saw earlier where God chooses us before the foundation of the world. Yes, but he chooses us according to his will and his purpose. So the, the problem in saying that faith is the part you do, if you're not careful, is that you take faith and you keep faith alone over here. You say, I must do faith in my own power, which then renders it into a work. It's all a gift. <clears throat> the gift is that before the foundations of the world, before we ever knew we needed a Savior, before we were old enough to speak, God chose for whatever reason in His mind to set His love upon you and me that have believed. And in recognizing that we are incapable of getting there on our own, he sends his son to do what we could not. And then in Christ, he takes us out of that dead state of sins and trespasses and places his son's righteousness upon us by making us alive, gifting us the faith to believe in empowering us through the Holy Spirit to do so. So someone could say, I chose God, or I believed in God, or I trusted in God. And all those statements at face value would be right. But in the nuance of things, what are they saying? Are they saying, I was dead and could not in any way do it myself? So, God made me alive and caused me to believe, brought me to faith, changed my want to? Or are they saying, God saw something in me and I, in myself, in my own power, had the faith to make it there? Well, then we're not, if, if that's the case, then we're not totally dead, are we? We're not totally wretched. There's some spark of some thing that makes us special apart from everybody else. And we know that's not the case. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them.
God, before we are saved, stands over against us in wrath. When he, stand, when he saves us, he stands over against us in grace so that we can't boast in ourselves or say that we did any good in of ourselves to achieve salvation. But where works comes in is in the thereafter. After having saved us, he saves us not just to chill for the rest of our lives, right? Not to just uh, sit on the beach and drink a Mai Tai and say, I'm good. I've got grace now. No, he saves us to do good works. Um, and, you know, you got to be careful that you don't make it all about evidence. We get so kind of tied up sometimes in what that means. Uh, I think a lot of Christians, when they get saved, and I'll be wrapping up here in a minute, um, they think they, they have the heart to follow after Christ and it always ends up that somewhere in our own vanity for many of us, I wouldn't say all of us, we then think that we got to do the most grandiose thing, all of us, but all of us are not supposed to be preachers or missionaries or, you know, uh, deacons or whatever have you. But we are told here that we're created for good works and that begins then there, and that's not just those things I've mentioned. That's having love for your brother and sister in Christ. That's having love for those who are lost in sin and telling them about Jesus. That's coming to church and hearing the gospel and then rejoicing that with your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's, well, you name it. You know what good works are. I know y'all. <laughs> uh, we're created, though, for good works, that we should walk in them, not in order that we may try and continue to gain some favor with God. That's one of the things I struggled with when I was a kid that I, I treated it up into my 20s as though I had to meet a certain checklist of things, not because I was trying to earn salvation, because, but because I wanted God to stay happy with me. God's happy with me only because of Christ. Yes, he chastens me like a son, and he corrects me, but it's a loving correction. He's not, you know, just trying to, I don't know how to phrase it, tear me a new one, I guess, I don't know. Um, You're no longer a son of wrath. Yeah, this wrath is no longer upon me. That's been taken in Jesus Christ. And the Bible tells us that we know those that are saved by their fruit. Not that we're fruit inspectors, but I think when you go to church and you uh, worship God together and you do life together, there's this thing where your spirit and your brothers and sisters' spirit just kind of bear witness with each other. And you know that that person's in Christ, though you can't see in their heart, though you weren't there inside seeing them be changed. Um, John 3, 8 says, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So born of the Spirit. We we know the wind, right? I, I can't step out here, feel the effects of the wind and say, well, this wind came from California and it's blowing in this amount of dust and because of that, the sunshine, right? You know, I don't, I can't lick my finger and say, well, that came from Maine or, you know, I don't 
the wind is mysterious like that to me, though we have meteorologists to explain it. Um, but we know it's the wind when we feel it, don't we? There's, as much as we try and explain all the goodness, all the blessings that we've read about here, just in Ephesians, and try and fully comprehend them, talk about them theologically speaking, it's so hard just to fully wrap your mind around it, and yet we know it. We know those who have it. So, and we know those who are born of the Spirit, who have been regenerated, who have come to faith, who have new life, and who follow after God. So, all of this is so that God gets all the glory. Uh, D.A. Carson says that this stands against alleged forms of Christianity where salvation is the product of your own effort and stands against cheap grace where there is no transformation at all. Those that are in Christ will be transformed. You may not always feel like it. You may struggle with so much that I don't know about. And sometimes you may think there's not much transformation at all. But if God means to save a person, to bring them to life, to, to give them faith, to, to cause them to love him and to, make them, to cause them to want to work for him, it's going to happen. It's not that we should be so stressed out all the time. We talk about rest all the time. And I've tried to explain that to people outside of the church, and I've quickly walked into the, but we've got to do things, right, kind of mentality. Yes, but we don't do it out of fear. We do it because God is working that in us, causing that to be thing. It's a natural thing for someone who's saved to follow after Christ, to work for him. Not out of any fear, but out of love and joy. What was I saying? Um... Part of the rest doesn't mean that we sit around and say, I'm under grace and we're, I'm all good. No, we labor for the Lord. But we labor. I have a note in my Bible that says, talking about the fact that we are going to do things, it says, I don't, I think this came from something from here, maybe like a. Um, Yeah, commentary or something, but it says that the that we should walk in them. It says not in the Greek. Um, it's an old English word that means shall. Mm-hmm. We shall walk in so, my that note too. So that's kind of where you're talking about we rest in it knowing and having faith that if God has regenerated us, then we shall walk in the works that he's prepared for us to do beforehand. And, and that's, I guess, what I'm trying to get is that we... It is, uh, it is going to occur. It's inevitable. Yeah, so we rest laboring for the Lord, knowing that he is going to bring us about to our, the fullness of our salvation. He's going to sanctify us, help us to walk in him. It may look all over the place, but God's going to do it. Ted, and I wanted to point out something, too. Yes, sir. You're mentioning how uh, when you go to church, the whole fruit inspector thing, you mission together. I think that's a key concept of this passage to me. Um, it talks about, you know, you were dead, plural. We were all dead. 
made the life together. And I'm gonna I'm gonna steal heavily from Doug here, but that made alive together with is like one word in the Greek, and it has this prefix apparently, sun s u n. That that word means together, and so that same prefix is used for uh, made alive together, raises up, and seated. All three of those little prepositions are uh, together made alive, together raised, and then together seated. And why is that important? Because the, previously in in chapter one, he's talking about and we who were the first to hope in Christ are to the praise of his glory. And you, after you heard the gospel of your salvation and believed, were also sealed with the Holy Spirit. Mm -hmm. We're no longer two separate people. We're no longer Hebrew and, well, Gentile. We're one. We are reconciled together and reconciled to God as one person. Yeah. Being that we're all in his, his workmanship, created him for good works, I don't think that we were ever meant to work alone. We're meant to be the part of the body. And in doing so, that helps us to, to recognize the realities of our new life in Christ uh, and helps us to follow after him. We're meant to follow him together, right? Um, and in knowing who is in Christ, uh, in trying to struggle with the reality of uh, you know, the old man and the new man, that warfare we have, isn't it much easier when you can come alongside your brother and sister and do that together? There are times where I don't feel so great and I get to uh, be in the presence of the deaf and balls or some of the other people that have been here and just talk about the Lord. And uh, then it reminds me of the joy that I have of what these passages say God has done for me and for you. Um, and... Uh, because the Bible tells us we know each other by those things, um, that reinforces our insurance, I think, a little bit. The, the corporate reality that we're talking about now will be really important as we get into kind of the more practical, because it is, and I keep bringing this example up, and I love it just in you know, Ephesians 4, let the thief no longer steal. And it's not, so you can work hard to pad your bank account. Right. It's so you can work hard, so you have something to be generous with, with the body. So everything that we're hearing now about the kind of this corporate reality, as we're think, thinking about good works, that's what, how Paul then applies it to something like stealing. Yeah. Kill off the thievery in you. Yeah. And what does it look like to, to put on these good works that God has prepared? Well, that we are working hard so that we can have something to share with others. Yeah. Yeah. Anything else? Well, I also just find it interesting that in verse 5, he breaks out into that little, by grace you've been saved. And he doesn't even include the uh, by faith yet, or through faith. And then in 8, he kind of expounds on that. He says it again, by grace you've been saved through faith. It's like an extra, we didn't do it. <laughs> I think it's actually more along the lines of what Paul is typically doing. As he's expounding these theological principles, his mind just goes, "Wow," you know, and he and he he does this doxology, and in this moment, he's saying, "You were dead, you're alive." Wow, by grace. Oh, oh yeah, I'm gonna get to that later. Let me get back to my point now. Right, but after eight, he says, "And this is not your own doing." It's like yeah. after saying, 
And Paul's emphasis is definitely one of amazement. Like, look what you have. This is meant to encourage us. Look what you have in Christ, what you were without him, and what he's brought you to, and what he is going to do for you. This is when we're out when we're out when we're when we're not saved, we have a really hard time believing that we're dead. Mm -hmm. You're you're thinking, you know, I'm dead. Even when we are saved, we sometimes struggle with that thought of you're saying I was dead, dead? Yeah. Like I, I couldn't do anything to choose. But so there's like that hard thing to grasp. But then I love how on the opposite end of things, Paul des uh, describes the immeasurable riches of grace. Yeah. Like, okay, well, you think that's hard to believe? You're not get, ever gonna fully grasp the the riches of his grace because even into eternity, you will be discovering it. Yeah. It's immeasurable. Amen. Yeah, and that goes towards the fact that God's going to get all of the glory for mm -hmm. this, right? The, this is <laughs> because so that in the coming ages, which he talks about this age and the age to come. No, now he's talking about the coming ages. This is for all of the rest of eternity. When someone is trying to understand what God's grace is like, mm. All God has to do is point at us and say, look, this is what I what my grace is. I took this wretched sinner who was completely antagonistic against me, dead in his trespasses and sin, was a, was a child of wrath, and I adopted him, yeah. and I changed him, and I, oh my goodness. Yeah. For the rest of eternity, those whom God has redeemed will be the trophies of his grace so that when there is no opportunity because sin is completely erased when there is no opportunity for someone to experience that same kind of grace God will be able to point to those whom he has already redeemed and say this is my grace yeah I hope I hope as we go from here this morning, whether you're having good times or you're struggling through a week, I hope you'll be reminded of the language and the, the uh, spirit with which Paul talks here. Wow, look what God has done. Wow, look what God is doing. Wow, look what God is going to do. I hope your hearts are filled with that sort of praise. It's hard sometimes but to reorient try and reorient your thinking that way in the holy spirit can completely change your week your conversation how you talk to those around you how you deal with those i struggle with this every day i'm excited for next week we have a therefore so this concludes the thread of paul's uh string of thoughts and he will enlighten us further in light of what we've learned since we started the study so um i'll pray and we can be dismissed lord thank you for all that you have done your mighty works done by your hands for bringing us to de from death to new life saving our souls and giving us hope lord i pray that the reality of that hope fills our hearts this morning as we go in to worship Help us to praise you, to rejoice in you, 
and to love you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.